Hey, how's it going? I'm your host, Gerhard Bazu, and you're listening to Ship It, a podcast about getting your best ideas into the world and seeing what happens. We talk about code, ops, infrastructure, and the people that make it happen. Yes, we focus on the people because everything else is an implementation detail. Do you remember the last time that you got stuck, searched the docs, and within minutes it all clicked? You got unblocked and you could continue with what you were doing without breaking the flow. In reality, it rarely works like this, but it should. Today, I'm joined by Kathy Korvek, former Senior Director of Product at GitHub and now Vercel's Head of Product. Docs play an essential role in GitHub Actions, and my own experience has proven that I build, test and ship code better using GitHub Actions because of their excellent docs. But do you know that the docs which Kathy pictures are not the docs that you are imagining? She explains it best in her post, Maybe it's time you're rethink docs, which is what started this conversation. The bottom line is that just as you wouldn't ship untested code, shipping code without documentation is not optional. This conversation explains why. Big thanks to our partners Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. Get your feature flags powered by launchdarkly.com. And we love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com forward slash changelog. Hey shippers, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Render. Render is a zero DevOps cloud for developers and teams. And I'm here with Anurag Goel, CEO of Render. Anurag, why are developers choosing Render over Heroku? A lot of Render customers come to us from Heroku and they tell us Render is what Heroku could have been. I think it's because we offer a more streamlined approach to hosting modern cloud applications at a significantly better price point. All right, learn more about how Render compares to Heroku at render.com slash compare or email changelog at render.com for a personal introduction and to ask questions about the Render platform. Again, changelog at render.com or go to render.com slash compare. found out about the work that you do, Kathy, is uh, by Jared logging a news item. And um, the title was maybe it's time to rethink the, the docs. Uh-huh. And I was thinking, yes, it is time to rethink the docs. And one of the things that I really liked about what you wrote, this was um, a blog post, I think, on GitHub, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly which part. GitHub was really big. I think, well, no, I know that you were at GitHub at the time since mm-hmm. you've joined Vercel. And uh, this is like an interesting behind the scenes. We were meant to record, I think, a few weeks back, but you've yeah. only just joined. Things were a bit crazy. So we just delayed it by a few weeks. It was the right call. I'm happy we did that. <laughs> and the one thing which really resonated with me from what you wrote was that when you're stuck on a problem and you turn to the docs, there's a moment of magic mm-hmm. when you find the solution. You try it out and it all works. And that really clicked because that's exactly what you would want docs to do. When you're stuck, mm-hmm. you would like to reference something, you read it, and then you get it. Yep. What made you capture it so well? Because it was perfect. Well, thank you. I think probably 
what made me capture it so well is that I've been working with a team of writers for the past couple of years, and they have taught me a lot about how to write. I noticed that my writing got a lot better, and I became uh, much more of a stickler for good structure in documentation. And just like even in my Slack messages or my emails and things like that from the writers really rubbed off on me. And that was really nice because that's being really detailed about writing is not my strong suit. <laughs> if that, that might sound kind of weird coming from somebody who led a documentation team, but I know that about myself. I actually leaned on the writing team pretty heavily to help me edit things and make things sound a lot better. But you know, I think for me, I'm really passionate about enabling any developer anywhere in the world to build and ship world-class software, you know, regardless of where they are or what machine they're on. And I think that unlocking that moment of like, I have built something and now it works is really, really important to me. Not only because like, just for me, I remember that feeling of coding something really simple when I was getting into working on the web. And it just felt so cool. It felt so much like, oh my God, this is magical. I can create stuff. Like my family, I am from a family of musicians and artists and I was the scientist. <laughs> and I was always mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, what I'm into is not what they're into. I'm into, you know, coding and mathematics. And I was actually really into a lot of like animal science and things like that. So I was very different. And so when I figured out like how to make websites, it was kind of that this moment of like, I feel like I, in a way, belong because I was making something that, you know, like could be considered a work of art. I was never that good. <laughs> but that moment of magic of like making something and seeing it work was really important to me. And I've been blocked before. And even on just simple things that are rudimentary that I do all the time, but I don't always remember you know, what the syntax is or whatever, going to the documentation and having it very clearly laid out for me was really important just to like get me back to the business of coding, basically. I think docs are very, very important. And I used to subscribe to the belief of like, you know, docs are a crutch to they enable a poor user experience or things like that. And I've definitely, that was a long, long time ago that I believed that. And I've definitely grown out of that, that thinking. I think docs are part of the product And the more they become part of the product, the more they unlock that magical moment for people. I think that's really important because as someone that writes code, gets it out there and just has to answer, does it work? Does it do what I think it does? Does it address Mm -hmm. the problem that our users have? That's great, but go beyond that. There's so much Mm -hmm. more. And that's like almost like level one. Well, what about level 10? And there's like all these layers and I'm not sure exactly where docs fit, but it's definitely part of the whole story. You can't just be writing code and you can't have just great automation on its own. Docs play a very important role. And it doesn't mean that your software or your system or whatever you have is not self-explanatory. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't Mm -hmm. like the, the crutch, you've put it perfectly. It's not that. It's another layer, another perspective to your product, Mm -hmm. to what you build, to what you believe in. So how do you capture that? I really strongly believe that docs are an API to the product and we need to treat them Mm -hmm. like there are several different interfaces. You know, there's the SDK, there's the web, there's the application, and then there's documentation. It's an interface for the code. And when you think about it that way, it really helps you connect the docs to the code in a way Mm -hmm. that is just going to empower more people to use your product. 
And that's what you want. You know, at GitHub, we saw a lot of our documentation was used by people who were very new to the platform. And that makes sense. I think a lot of documentation teams probably see similar kinds of traffic. And I think for those kinds of users, it's like it's on us to connect the dots for them and make sure that they're onboarding sufficiently and in a way where they don't feel like they're like, okay, well, I'm using this new thing. Take for self. I'm at Vercel right now. Take for self as an example. We could have people joining and signing up for Vercel all day long, but if they get frustrated and they can't deploy their site, they're probably not going to come back and they're probably going to go to one of our competitors. Now that's totally fine because that means that, you know, they're getting their answer somewhere and I would rather have them on the web than not on the web, not deploying their site. So I'm fine if they can't figure it out with us and they go somewhere else, but I do want to know what their frustration was. And if it was documentation, that hurts because that's one of the places that we can easily update and we can easily help them through that experience. And I think it's our obligation to do so. And because it is so simple and we do get so many signups coming through and it's kind of like, you know, when I was at GitHub, you know, you see this kind of like people sign up and then some of them turn off of the platform. And I kind of have this belief that docs can be a part of helping them through and helping them stick around and helping them use GitHub in a really cool way, not in a selfish way, but like, you know, we want to obviously keep our users using our products, but I want to make sure that they're using them to fulfill their dreams. And that's where docs can really help them. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I really get it through and through for years, same page, definitely same page. <laughs> but I'm wondering for someone that is focused 80, 90% to just shipping code, what would you tell to that person when it comes to the documentation? Yeah. So one of the pieces of feedback I hear a lot is that developers don't like to context switch between, you know, working in their IDE or looking at getting stuck, looking at code, going back and forth to all these different tools. They're working in the CLI. They might need to go to github.com or vishsal.com for things. That can cause just a lot of churn, I think. And so when you're spending a lot of your time in all of these different tools, you do get a lot of that whiplash. And so I think where docs can help you and where we can take docs is creating systems that bring docs to where the developer is a lot more. And so one of the things, I don't know if I talked, I can't remember if I talked about this in that article that you referenced in the beginning of the conversation that we should rethink, maybe it's time we rethink docs. But I do think that creating better APIs for documentation so that developers can bring that documentation into where they are or either themselves, maybe they want to have access to that, the functionality in a certain way because they're building tutorials or they need access to the documentation where they are in the IDE, things like that. I think we can do a much better job at bringing the content and bringing the docs to where you are, even in line as you're working with a CLI, for example. And so I think uh, a lot of documentation, especially for developer tools, is very, very web focused. And I think it can we can really start to think of it as a system that can work with the developer tool set in the workflow as they're going through developing, looking at staging, et cetera, and then actually deploying it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm almost wondering, if someone that really cares about code, shipping good code, would tests be optional? I think the answer is no for the majority. What about actually getting the code out in production? Is that optional? 
I would like to think that for most of our listeners, it's not, right? You want to see your code in production. You want to understand the behavior at production scales, so on and so forth. So the natural question is, why are docs optional? Why do you think they're optional? So why do you think docs aren't optional? <laughs> <laughs> why do I think they're not? Yeah. yeah, there's a little bit of philosophy here. And I think it probably depends on, the answer probably depends on who you talk to. But my philosophy is that the product doesn't exist until it's documented. And the reason for that, and I think you can probably connect the dots, is that I really feel that documentation is part of the product itself. And if you don't have documentation for people to get their answers or for people to give you additional feedback about you know, how they may be interacting with the docs or with the product itself, then I think you've kind of failed. But I do think that the reason why a lot of people, maybe people don't think docs are optional, or maybe they haven't thought about this question to the extent that I think would really benefit them if they do deep dive into this, is that a lot of times you're up against a timeline and you want to get stuff out. And docs typically falls after you have finished feature or finished a part of the product. And then you're like up against you know, like we got to ship this today and docs often just gets cut from the launch plan. And I think that's unfortunate because there are so many opportunities. Like if you think about docs as code and you start to structure how you work with documentation, you can actually document things really easily along the way. And especially if you're working really closely with writers and developers who, you know, at GitHub, we always talked about the EPD, the engineering product and design team. And right before I left, we recently started talking about the WEPD, the writers, engineering and design team and bucketing them all in one, because really the writers can help a lot with end user testing. They can help with feedback. They can help you make sure that your entire feature is actually makes sense for the end user. Like if you think about writers almost as designers, but at the end of your iteration, it can really help you improve a lot of those details over time. And if you do that, then you're constantly kind of writing documentation alongside with the, as the software is being developed and iterating on that documentation to make it better and better and better because you're treating it as part of the product within the same system that you're developing. And I think that's probably not something that a lot of teams, if you're lucky enough to have a team of writers and think about documentation, then oftentimes you're thinking about it at the end of the cycle, and then it is at risk to get cut before it goes out. I think that's exactly right. And that's how my even started when you said that we need to bring the docs closer mm-hmm. to where the code writing happens. And having writers involved with that process is one way. But what happens when you have a smaller team where you have, I want to say like a one-person company, but let's say a five-person company where you don't have a dedicated writer? Yeah. What would you recommend in that case of that team does. Yeah. I mean, we're in this situation right now at Vercel. We're hiring technical writers, but we don't have any on staff. We have documentation. We have great documentation for Next.js and Vercel. How did that happen? So I think that the people who know the most about a product are the people who are building it. And the benefit of this kind of situation is that you can get those people to write the documentation. And that's often what happens, but you kind of have to have this ethic that I talked about, which is like documentation can never be an afterthought. You have to think about it as you're building. 
and also celebrate it throughout. And so that's been my experience so far at First Cell. And when I was at Heroku, we were in the same situation. We had documentation, but we didn't have writers. And the product team, it, a lot of people would say it falls on the product team's shoulders to write the documentation or it falls on the engineer's shoulders. I think it's an opportunity to express what you have built and also take a step back and almost go into the same mindset that you had when you were writing the spec, when you were approaching the problem. Now you're at the end of the problem and you're about to ship it. You can go into that same mindset of like, let's review and make sure that what I've built actually matches what I intended. And that's what this writing process can help you with. That said, we do have people in both situations at Vercel and at Heroku. We do have people thinking about the documentation system and thinking about how to write good articles and providing that information to the rest of the team in a form of a system, system notes, system documents, et cetera. So that when you do go to, if you're not a writer like me, when you do go to write documentation, you have the resources you need to know like, okay, well, here's how the system works. Here's how the taxonomy works. There's somebody kind of thinking about that. And sometimes that falls to a product manager or somebody who doesn't have a documentation background. And I think that's awesome. I think having people thinking about the system in terms of the way that it's designed, who are outside of a writing discipline, is really great because they're thinking about the product of the docs itself. And I think that that really helps. I think that makes a lot of sense. If you don't have any of those people, have a champion. <laughs> yes, have a champion. Okay, so someone that reminds you the importance, someone like you, right? Hey, docs is important. This is why it's important. This is what it looks like, so on and so forth. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Product people helping with the documentation. If you don't have writers, it helps to have writers for the taxonomy, for the structure, for like the higher level concepts that are specific mm -hmm. to writing, what makes good writing, which is very mm -hmm. important. And yeah. uh, you mentioned how, how much it changed your outlook on good documentation, having worked with good writers. So that is important. But what about, I'm just a developer, okay? I have to write my code, write my tests, preferably first, commit, push, get it out there, get it in production. At what point should I, the developer, write the docs? You hit on a good point, which is I don't want to underestimate the work that it takes to write good docs. I think technical writers are, and this may be controversial to say, but I think they're undervalued in the industry. I think they are especially technical writers for very technical tools, for developer tools, for the space that I tend to work in. We demand a lot from our writers. And what happens is they're undervalued, so they're overstretched. So we only hire like one or two of them to document an entire product. And that means that, you know, like where you might hire one or two technical writers, you have five or six product managers who are shipping things, you know, a team of 100 engineers who are shipping things. Those two technical writers then have to know everything about the system, whether it's existing, legacy, or new and upcoming. And that's a lot of demand on them to not only understand like what technical writing system looks like, but also really fully understand what the product is. And so when you find these people who work on these small teams like this, they're brilliant and they can do a ton of things, not just writing, but most of the time they want to do writing because that's what they've chosen to do for their profession. So I definitely don't want to undervalue them and say that their job can be done by somebody who's not a technical writer. 
But I think if you don't have a technical writer on your team, you can do things like document as you're going. And that's kind of what I was talking about before, where it's like, you know, treat documentation and writing as part of your development process. You know, that introduces another step in a lot of ways and something that you can forget about, but it helps you in the end, especially looking back at like, okay, you now have a record of the decisions you've made and how things have changed. And that can help your development process in the long run. So the way I understand there are about three stages. The first stage, the incipient one is docs don't exist. No, that's stage zero. And that's mm-hmm. a bad one to be. That's maybe the worst one to be and just ignore docs altogether. Yeah. The first stage, the first proper stage is to write some docs the best you can as a developer as you build a feature. Don't leave them last because you'll forget. Think about the user. If anything, it forces you to think about the end user more as you write the docs. How will they be consuming this? What problems might mm-hmm. they have? So on and so forth. Then as a product team, encourage the product team to help writing the docs because they have a higher level perspective, a deeper, longer, wider, however you want to take it, just a larger point of view into how this feature fits in the product. And that helps. Mm -hmm. But what you should really be doing, and this is like level three or the last one, have some technical writer. Have this team, the cross-functional team, which includes a technical writer, which is super important. And maybe is no longer optional because our products are growing more complex. Things are changing faster and you forget the human element. You think it's just like about slinging code. Let's just get it done. It breaks. Okay, we'll fix it. Let's move on. Well, maybe what you should be doing is maybe slowing down and investing in good documentation. Yeah, definitely. You know, you mentioned the human aspect of it, and I think that's really important. And one of the things that I talked about in that article is writing documentation that can be flexible for how people learn. People learn in many different ways. I am a very visual person, and so I like to pair a lot with people. I like to see their screens, and I like to I like to see other and watch other people doing things. So videos really help me learn. And other people like to get hands-on, and that really helps them learn. Some people, and I envy them, but just reading helps them learn. And so I think it's really important, if you can, think about documentation in a way that meets people's needs and helps them learn in different ways. And one of the things that we started to look into at GitHub was, you know, just take the simple article template and say we're looking at at a guide or a tutorial. That guide can be presented on one page in three different ways. You can have the text on the page for those people who read through it. You can have an interactive element where people can play around with the code. You could actually manipulate that code and take it with you if you needed to. And that can be really powerful too, because then you're merging the learning and the development in one place and you have that context in your head as you approach your project. And then you can also like maybe in the same place where you have the interactive element, you have a toggle between interactive or video. And then if you're watching a video, have it be somebody just literally showing their screen, walking through the steps of that article. Because the point isn't necessarily to talk about, you know, something else or introduce other ideas. The point is to learn what's on the page. And that can be very valuable. And if you do have a team that can introduce content in various different ways, I think it'll pay dividends to your goals for sign-up churn or for engaged users and things like that.
This episode is brought to you by Teleport. Teleport lets engineers operate as if all cloud computing resources they have access to are in the same room with them. SSO allows discovery and instant access to all layers of your tech stack behind NAT, across clouds, data centers, or on the edge. I have Ev Consovoy here with me, co-founder and CEO of Teleport. Ev, help me understand industry best practices and how Teleport Access Plane gives engineers unified access in the most secure way possible. So the industry best practice for remote access means that the access needs to be identity-based, which means that you're logging in as yourself, you're not sharing credentials from anybody. And the best way to implement this is uh, certificates. It also means that you need to have unified audit for all the different actions. With all these difficulties that you would experience configuring everything you have, every server, every cluster, with certificate-based authentication and authorization, that's the state of the world today. They have to do it. But if you are using Teleport, that creates a single endpoint. It's a multi-protocol proxy that natively speaks all of these different protocols that you're using. It makes you to go through SSO, single sign-on, and then it transparently allows you to receive certificates for all of your cloud resources. And the beauty of certificates is that they have your identity encoded and they also expire. So when the day is over, you go home, your access is automatically revoked. And that's what Teleport allows you to do. So it allows engineers to enjoy the superpowers of accessing all of cloud computing resources as if they were in the same room with them. That's why it's called Teleport. And at the same time, when the day is over, the access is automatically revoked. That's the beauty of Teleport. All right, you can try Teleport today in the cloud, self-hosted, or open source. Head to goteleport.com to learn more and get started. Again, goteleport.com. exactly what I was thinking about hearing you talk about documentation itself. Most think it's just text. Walls and walls of text. Man pages. They have their place, but that's not the type of documentation that we are thinking about. And that's actually the second thing which I really loved about that post, which is maybe it's time we rethink docs. I'm going to link to it in the show notes, where documentation is not just text. It's the videos, it's the interactive elements, because documentation, and these are your words, Kathy, and I love them, they're learning experiences. That's what it is. Like you're trying to mm-hmm. learn something. You don't understand something, you're blocked. And that mm-hmm. block means you're missing a piece or maybe multiple pieces. So how will you get those pieces? Reading text, most people are fine with that. But I think we're seeing, I don't want to see like a new age of developers of like a new trend, but I think in today's age, video, I don't think it's optional anymore. I think it's like the something that people expect to have. Also, the interactive element, super important. So if you stop thinking about docs as text, but more as learning experiences, then you start realizing, well, hang on, do you mean all my demos and all my pitches and all my things are actually docs? In a way, they are. Are mm-hmm. my blog posts docs? In a way, they are. So, I mean, sure, you can do that at the end. I know that Amazon, with starting, what was the name of the book? Hang on, let me just, I just let me just pick it up. Working backwards. I forgot about it. There's just too many books. Working backwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to start with a feature. Imagine it finished. Imagine it in front of users. Imagine the press release. Maybe that is the final doc 
that you create and then you just work backwards from that maybe so i really like this about your article kathy where you first of all you give an example of what github docs look like in certain sections and you give an example of what they should look like i love that it's so clear even in the example itself how did you come up with the idea the idea to introduce interactive elements Yes, interactive elements to expand people's horizons as, hey, it's not just text, it's actually videos, it's actually interactive elements. Yeah. Just open people's eyes to rethinking docs. Literally, that's the essence in my mind of that blog post. Totally. So when I was at Heroku, there was a rule that we were never allowed to put any marketing into our documentation. And I really subscribe to that. Like, yes, don't put marketing, don't get in a developer's way with trying to sell them things. And I think a lot of people take that to heart and they think like, okay, well, marketing means slide decks and demos and videos and things that actually make a page come to life. And so in order to not have marketing in your page, you have to make it really dull. And that really sucks for you know people like me who learn in different kinds of ways. And so I was just thinking like, you know, I constantly want to revisit, you know, is, was this a good idea? Just because we're doing it doesn't mean that we should be doing it. And you kind of fall into this trap of like, oh, well, we've, this is the way that it's been done forever. And so I really like to question that, question my own thinking and question my team's thinking a lot of like, you know, well, just because that's the answer doesn't mean it's the right one. So I kind of took a step back and said, well, what if we introduce, what if we talk about the value? of what GitHub Actions is and introduce some, just a little bit of marketing. And I realized it wasn't marketing that I was introducing. I was introducing a story and we should be able to tell the story of this feature, of this product and who it's for and why you might use it on your project in the documentation, not just this like one-to-one, here is the feature, you know, here's the UI or here's the CLI component or whatever. And then just like have that one-to-one UI to text document, we should like show people using it. And then I just got thinking like, okay, well, what if we add a video? And I looked around, you know, like as a product manager, I looked around and did a bunch of competitive research. And so like I saw that, you know, Netlify was adding videos. Why can't we add videos? CircleCI is adding tutorials that are not written by anybody on their team. They're written by the community. Why can't we have that in our documentation? So it's kind of this like FOMO moment (laughs) of like, well, other people have this thing. I want this thing. And then I started to put it together with like, you know, you can actually incorporate all of these elements onto one screen if you think about it like a system. And then it can start to help that product or that feature really come to life for people. Mm -hmm. And then you go through like I went through my typical product development process, which is like sketch something out, show it to somebody, get some feedback and then go a little bit further. But, you know, what's really interesting is you mentioned something that I really like, which is, you know, you're new to this project, you're new to a product, you want to test it out. And documentation is really important for people who are kind of new to something, which I think that's very, very true. And in a lot of ways, I structured, I didn't talk about this in the article, but in a lot of ways, I structured the way the pages were laid out based on our most trafficked user, which was the person who was new to the screen. I wanted to prioritize their use case. That said, we get a lot of, at GitHub, we got a lot of traffic from people who are not new to GitHub, but were new to the documentation in certain ways where they were like using GitHub, you know, for very predictable things. But then when 
GitHub Universe happened and we introduced a brand new feature, everybody would get really excited about it and turn to the documentation right away to go learn about it. And so those folks, we definitely want to cater to as well. So it's kind of like, you know, you've been here for a while, we just introduced a new feature. And so we want to be a little bit splashy with it. And so we want to introduce some cool things. I mentioned GitHub Actions. So what one of the things we did was we revamped the GitHub Actions page to where we weren't just documenting like a one-to-one, like I said, the here's the UI, here's the UI in text form. <laughs> we were starting to incorporate a lot more of the community. So GitHub Actions, one of the coolest things about it is that the community writes these actions and workflows. And they sometimes are hard to find, especially if you're just getting started with GitHub Actions. You have to kind of like troll through a bunch of repositories and go and, and read somebody else's. We could talk about repository documentation too, but go and read their documentation about what this thing does. So the discoverability was hard. So what we did was we actually built a component within the GitHub Actions page that pulled all of some of that information into the GitHub Actions documentation itself and allows you to search different code examples for how to use GitHub Actions. And I think that unlocked a lot of the aha for people because they were like, oh, well, GitHub Actions, I can go and try it right now. That component was really easy to put together. I mean, it was literally like we added some front-end code and then it was me updating a YAML file with like manually updating a YAML file (laughs) with links to all of this repositories and some I think I wrote a bunch of the description text myself just to get it out there and see if people were using it and they loved it. And so there was just this kind of like, you went from having FOMO to participating in the FOMO. That's what the documentation unlocked. Mm. And the final thing I'll say about this is wanting people to have that magic moment and then seeing them have it is super gratifying for anyone who is building a product. And that was that was really fun and that was very motivating for me to Keep going. (laughs) This makes a lot of sense in my head now. So I remember using GitHub Actions when it first came out. And I remember a lot of things being primordial and just a lot of questions not being answered. Mm -hmm. And over time, it got better and better and better to the point that I like it really much. I mean, at this point, I've tested all the CIs that there have been in the last 15 all the popular ones by far. So anything that you have used as a listener, I have tried out myself and even used myself. And I can say that GitHub Actions as a product was brilliant and it continues Uh being brilliant. Documentation plays a big part in it. It's still YAML and there's still that dissonance between, well, what do I put in this file? And then you go to the docs and you have all the reference and okay, so what do I actually want? You have some examples, it gets you started, it's okay. It gets you there, but then it keeps handholding you through the entire process. And you can build some pretty good pipelines with GitHub Actions just by mm-hmm. following the docs. You mm-hmm. look at some examples, more advanced ones, all the different GitHub Actions you get from the marketplace, they also help and they have their own documentation. So that's good as well. The marketplace makes a big difference. But overall, it's a nice experience. And even though GitHub Actions itself, it has various limitations as everything, by the way, nothing's perfect. Stop looking for it. It doesn't exist, by the way. It's really, really good. And I liked it. And as a whole, it felt more human than any of the other CI systems that I used. And as I said, I went through many of them. Look at the show Mm -hmm. notes. I'll drop a few, the most popular ones. But there's something to be said about the product. 
there's something to be said about the experience, whether it's a learning one or using one, doesn't matter where you stand, that experience yeah. is really important. And documentation, it contributes to that. You can't have it a good really product experience without good documentation. I think what you're getting at is there's kind of like two things. There's documentation is a detail that you should not overlook. When we first released GitHub Actions, this is a little bit of inside baseball, but when we first released GitHub Actions, and I think mm -hmm. a lot of people who release a big product will empathize with this, you know, it was definitely awesome. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is going to change a lot of workflows. And it connects a lot of workflows right inside of GitHub. So that was super powerful. But, you know, it wasn't perfect. Not that we were seeking perfection, but it needed yeah. some improvements. And one of the things the team did was they took a couple of iterations and they said, okay, what details matter here? What should we focus on? And so they shipped the thing and then they revisited it again and again and again. And so even in the UI, you know, like, and they also pulled in the documentation into the UI, which I love. But they perfected those details over time. And I think what you're saying is a reflection of that hard work that went into yes. that. And, you know, I think um, even the documentation, you know, we, we released the initial documentation for GitHub Actions and it was okay. But we needed, especially as the product evolved, we needed to iterate and keep up. And when I first started on the team, improving the documentation at GitHub as a whole was a big mandate of mine. But I picked a white whale, which was GitHub Actions, because we had been getting a ton of feedback about the GitHub Actions documentation specifically. So I said, well, you know, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to jump into the deep end and I'm going to go after, you know, what we get the most amount of feedback from. And one of the things I learned in that experience was that it is really powerful seeing how other people do things. And not only for myself, but for other people, it's like, you know, you go in, you go to Stack Overflow and you ask for an example, you're seeing how somebody else might solve your problem. And it's the same thing that we wanted to apply to bringing these code examples into documentation. It's like, how are other people working with GitHub Actions? How are they building their workflows and their pipelines? What are the other examples that I could then apply to what I'm doing? There's a lot of power in that kind of thing. It goes beyond a template. It is actually how somebody's using it that can be really eye-opening. What's up, shippers? This episode is brought to you by Sentry. You already know working code means happy customers, and that's exactly why teams choose Sentry. From error tracking to performance monitoring, Sentry helps teams see what actually matters, resolve problems quicker, and learn continuously about their applications from the front end to the back end. Over a million developers and 70,000 organizations already ship better software faster with Sentry. That includes us. And guess what? You can too. ShipIt listeners new to Sentry get the team plan for free for three months. Use the code SHIPIT when you sign up. Head to Sentry.io and use the code SHIPIT. The one thing which I really liked about GitHub Actions is seeing how it's changed week by week, month by month. And it's that journey that I was on by using GitHub Actions that felt comfortable. I knew that the shortcomings which it had will be addressed. 
I knew that the frustrations, the small ones, with the documentation, with whatever it may be, eventually will be addressed. You had a very good GitHub community where I could ask questions, people could join, and it felt like it's part of the GitHub experience, of the GitHub Actions experience specifically. And that really helped. Mm -hmm. The marketplace kept growing, people kept building more awesome stuff. So it wasn't just GitHub, it was the whole GitHub Actions community contributing. And that felt great. Seeing things improve constantly at a comfortable pace, the trust element growing, it was amazing. I really liked, and I still like, and enjoy being part of that journey. How much did you have to do with that, Kathy? How much did I have to do with that? Yes. Specifically on the GitHub Actions side. So I was not on the GitHub Actions team. I worked closely with them in that my you know, my direct colleagues are running that team. But one of the things that I can talk about it from a documentation standpoint, if that's what you mean. Yes. But one of the things that you're touching on, which I think is really, really important, is that when you started using GitHub Actions, it was a product that was in beta, basically. Like we had just shipped it and mm -hmm. there were yes. some things that we needed to improve. And the team was really interested in collecting a bunch of feedback so that we could improve those things. At that moment, you are taking a huge leap of trust because you're talking about putting a lot of probably your critical developer workflow infrastructure onto GitHub Actions and in order to use CI, CD. And to use that integration is really, really important for the success of your product long term. And so you're trusting GitHub to you know, update the product in a way that is going to work for you, that's a ton of trust. And so I take, you know, a couple steps back and I'm thinking like, okay, why did you do that? Why did you make that decision to trust GitHub in that way? And I think that trust is earned. And if we go back, you know, a couple years before or like a year before I joined, GitHub had lost a lot of that trust with users. And I think very famously with the Dear GitHub letter. So the Dear GitHub letter, if people don't know what that is, it was a letter that was from the community asking for certain features and certain products to be updated in a way that could really, really help maintainers. And maintainers are a big part of GitHub, maintainers of open source projects. So there were a lot of kind of like low-hanging fruit things. There were a lot of bigger projects that people were asking for. And so kind of in response to that, in response to losing the trust of some of our maintainers and some of our users, we decided to put together a project that I led called Paper Cuts. And we, we talk about this publicly. We talk about this. We can link to it in the show notes. We talk about this in the Dear GitHub letter. It exists in a, in a GitHub repository. So you can go and, and see openly what the conversation is around all of this stuff. But we decided to take some of those requests and rapidly iterate on them, rapidly iterate on our platform to not only win the trust back of some folks who we consider very near and dear to the heart of GitHub and in the DNA of GitHub, but also to focus on the details because the details are what matter for developers. And if you don't focus on the details, those are the things that add up and end up getting in your way and end up, you know, like really kind of turning trickling stream into a raging gorge <laughs> that you can't cross. That's right. And we wanted to fix these small details. Yes. And over time, they add up to a huge win for our community and for the for these maintainers. And they paid off in dividends. And one of those dividends is trust. And so when you come to GitHub Actions for the first time and you're thinking, you know, like I'm going to now put a critical piece of my workflow onto this new in beta just shipped product, 
you can trust that GitHub is going to focus on those details over time. And that's exactly what we did. You know, the, the GitHub Actions team shipped this thing and then they said, okay, well, there are certain parts of it that aren't perfect. And we are, you know, like, you're always striving for perfection. You're never going to hit it. And so it's good motivation to keep on fixing things as you go. And on the documentation side, we felt the same thing. We shipped the first set of documentation for GitHub Actions and it wasn't great. We got into a lot of feedback about it very publicly about how we could improve GitHub Actions. And so when I started on the documentation team, I just kind of said, well, you know, <laughs> one of the biggest frustrations from our community that I can see publicly and in the, in the feedback we're getting just directly to the team is that the GitHub Actions documentation can be improved. So I picked that as my first thing to focus on when I was reimagining how documentation could look at GitHub. And some of the things I learned right away was that people had a hard time finding examples in the wild of what other people are doing. And they wanted to see that in order to, you know, like there's a little bit of like, let me see what other people are doing so I can help contextualize it for myself. And then there's a little bit of like, let me see what other people are doing so I can trust that system more, you know, like get proof that this works for other people. And so we wanted to incorporate that a little bit. Also, at the time that we started revamping a lot of these docs, we introduced a new documentation type tutorials, which into our system, which exists in a lot of different documentation systems. But we spent a lot of time thinking about and working with a team of technical writers about 20 of them who are working across GitHub, but a couple of them who are working specifically on GitHub Actions, but we embedded those technical writers on the GitHub Actions team to work with the engineers and designers on these tutorials so that we could kind of like get closer to the metal, I guess, and ship tutorials that made a lot more sense than they did in the past. The thing which I'm thinking about now is writing documentation and getting documentation out there part of the same repository. I know that a lot of what we talked about is bigger teams, larger organizations. But if you're a smaller team, again, just a handful of engineers, and you're trying to ship stuff and do everything else that you do as you would expect when you're part of a small team, would you recommend to have a single repository and put all your documentation there? Or would you recommend focusing on the code first, on how everything behaves, and then having documentation separately to your code. What do you think? I mean, I think it depends on how you work. I think if it's useful for you to have it separate, then do that. If it's useful for you to have it in the code itself, then do that. I think if you're just starting out, you're probably going to private beta or like ship something in public, but ask for a lot of feedback. And so it can be really helpful mm -hmm. at that time to have the documentation in line with the code. The way that I would think about it, and this is one thing that I do when I'm just starting a new project, is that I think about my documentation like I would release notes. And when I get to the end of my day or whatever, I'm kind of thinking about like, okay, what does this release look like for people? What are the bullet points that I really want to highlight? And I just start there. And then mm -hmm. that helps me. I can fill in the gaps later on, but at least I have the skeleton if I think about it in terms of like, how are people going to be consuming this once I release this package or something like that? The reason why I ask this is because I can see a lot of things coming together in a single GitHub repository. And I think that in itself is a very powerful concept. Not only have code mm -hmm. 
you have the readme, you have GitHub Actions in the same context, though you don't leave your repository, it's just another tab. You have discussions, which I love to see. And there was also the wiki concept for many, many years, but I don't think that quite mm -hmm. worked as well as it could have. It was okay, mm -hmm. but I don't think it brought the concept of documentation close to where the work was happening. I know that there's also the project concept, and I think that's slightly separate, but then you have issues in PRs, which are kind of linked with the yeah, project. Yeah, issues in PRs. I mean, that's what a project mm -hmm. is, right? All the items that you're doing are, are the issues and the PRs. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, Kathy, what would a better documentation implementation look like in the context of a GitHub repository alongside all the other things which I just mentioned? We often talked about whether we should have introduced a docs tab in the repository and it would kind of take you know like you mentioned the wiki and this is kind of what what a wiki is supposed to be but i think the word wiki is a little overloaded and the wiki product didn't take off i think in the way that it could have for the teams that were using that i talked to that are using wikis it really really works but you kind of have to make a commitment to wikis can be kind of messy and they're intended to be kind of messy Whereas documentation is something that you're making a commitment to it being part of part of the product for the end user. And while you're updating it, you're constantly thinking about like what I said, you're thinking about like, what did the release notes look like this? And how do I want my users, once I open this up, to consume it? And wikis can be a little bit more organic. And that's just my opinion. I'm sure, I'm sure what I'm saying is possibly controversial with some people who really, really love wikis. Mm. I used to love them. <laughs> I don't really use them that often anymore, but I think there's something really powerful about having the documentation right there with the code in the repository, especially like the documentation I was working with was documentation that was external and also accessible mm. without a login or anything. So external to the product. And so you almost have like the product up on one screen and the documentation up on another screen while you're using it. And that's like product documentation. But what we're kind of talking about now is like repository or code documentation. And having that all in one place is really, really useful. Having the readme document where you have installation information and you have update information and where to kind of how to navigate this repository, all of that's really, really powerful. And that's a piece of documentation. And so introducing something similar to where you could potentially have a documentation or docs tab is really cool because you can also then tie that into how people are pushing code to the repository. And so you could say like, you know, in every single pull request or you have a PR template or you have an issue template, you could have a portion of that right directly to the docs tab, documents in that tab if you wanted to. You could use GitHub Actions to pull that content in if you wanted to. So there's something really powerful about that kind yes. of a workflow where not only are you getting the context of having the docs in the tab for the end user, but you're also thinking about the published flow and automating that published flow in kind of a cool way. And we've been talking a lot about like, you know, what if you're one developer on the team, you don't have writers, like this could actually, this kind of a workflow could actually help you. It's something we talked yeah. about a lot on the documentation team. Like how do we go beyond just product documentation and think about improving code documentation. I'm a big fan of everybody meeting in a single place and then seeing what happens. And a GitHub repository, to me, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. The discussions are happening there. 
the automation is happening there via GitHub Actions. Uh, the code is definitely happening there. Your issues, your pull requests, community contributions are happening there. The docs, I think, should happen there too. GitHub Pages, it works. It works for you well. The wiki, mm -hmm. sure. The wiki was a really weird one because it was a repo inside a repo. And I don't think many people knew that. You could just clone yeah. the wiki and then you would have a repository of your wiki. And that was a bit like, what? That was just a bit awkward. But again, it worked. And people that knew it loved it and used it and so on and so forth. Once you start having many repositories, unless you need them, right? And if you are like thousands and thousands of people, you definitely need them. Well, hmm, I don't know. Facebook, single repo, Google, single repo. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I think they are the extremes, but let's not get bogged down in this. You know, it's really interesting. Like for one of the things that we we had to solve for when we open source documentation, speaking of like, do I have one repo or do I have multiple ones is that we had to actually, because we were the documentation team, we were documenting products that were under development. And so sometimes like we could do that out mm -hmm. in the open because the community knew about those things that we were working on, but sometimes we wanted to keep it a secret. And, you know, GitHub wants to make a big splash or a big launch mm -hmm. or we're not ready to accept feedback or whatever. And so we had to document those things in private, but we had an open source documentation project going on. And so we actually created two different repositories for documentation. One was internal, one was external. And we used GitHub Actions to bi-directionally sync the two every 15 minutes. And we would actually only sync the PRs merged to the main branch. So everything else was different on both sides, but the code was a mirror, which was pretty cool. I thought it was a nice workaround for us. Okay, okay. Are those GitHub Actions public by any chance? Yeah, the one that we used, it's called RepoSync, and that's an open source project. I'll check it out because that sounds really interesting. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. We're approaching the end of this. I know that some people, some listeners may be confused. The reason why you're confused is because when I started talking to Kathy, she was at GitHub. But when we recorded, she's at Vercel now. So I think mm -hmm. that the only logical next step is to do another interview with Kathy from Vercel, because this one sounds a lot like Kathy from GitHub, right? That's, that's <laughs> yeah. at least what, what I think. So Yeah, we can totally do that. Yeah, one focused on, on Vercel and the amazing work that you do there and the amazing work that the team does, I think would be, would be well-deserved. Let's put that opinion in it for now. We didn't even talk about Kathy's philosophy page, kathy.pm slash philosophy mm -hmm. that's a great one like you have to check it out right now put on pause go and check it out it's so good i was going to ask you about your three favorite items from that page but i think i mean if you have a quick answer we can do that my three favorite well i just added one that i think maybe i'll just add my one favorite <laughs> okay yes it's at the very very top i just added it and it's about embracing failure and i think that's really really important i think a lot of people in this industry myself included have a lot of imposter syndrome i have a ton right now because i just started at Vercel and i'm working with very very smart people and i have a job that is it's the biggest job i've ever done so i think the way that i combat mm. kind of imposter syndrome is to embrace failure as much as i can and if i do that then i'm constantly thinking like a scientist because I'm trying to prove myself wrong in order to ship the right thing for the customer. And learning that was huge because it gave me this huge out for failure. <laughs> this is exactly what I've been talking to someone. I can't remember their name two days ago. And I was talking to someone else. I think it was Patrick two weeks ago about learning from failure. Brian Lyle. I remembered it. Mm -hmm. 
I was not talking, replying to a tweet. Let me be specific and clear. I was replying to a tweet saying about how much more we learn from failure than from success. Mm -hmm. And my opinion is that it has to do with uh, the bias for loss. People feel losing a lot harsher than when they win. They feel like, you know, they, they feel they have stronger emotions about loss than success. And I mm -hmm. think when you feel that you failed, it has stronger emotions and stronger reactions within you. And it feels like it's, it's like, feels like a more meaningful experience, mm -hmm. but it doesn't need to be a negative one, by the way. I mean, okay, it depends on the type of failure. I don't want to like go down the, the rabbit hole, but if your experiment failed, you've learned something. And if you learn from failure, well, is there a better thing? I don't know what you could learn better or what source of learnings is better than failure. And if you start looking yeah. at it like that, the world is your oyster. Yeah, totally. I mean, the fastest way to being right is to admit that you were wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. For me, it helped. It helped me embrace the mm. fear of failure, I think, is something that you have to embrace and use yes. to help you just get better. I would ask you, if a listen, if I had to remember one thing from this conversation, what would that be? But from my perspective, it would be just what we discussed, learning from failure. Is there something else? <laughs> that as a listener, I should take away from this other than that, which I think is the top one, the top item? You know, I think that because we were talking about documentation, probably one of the biggest things I would take away from this conversation is that if you are shipping things specifically for developers, documentation is going to unlock that magic moment for them no matter what. And that's why documentation matters the most is you know, helping people get to that, aha, oh my God, I got it. And it works. And I don't have to sit here and bang my head against the wall anymore because I learned from the docs and that feeling is so gratifying. That sums it up so nicely. There's nothing more to add. Kathy, <laughs> this has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been really fun. That's it for this episode of Ship It. Thank you for tuning in. We have a bunch of podcasts for developers at Changelog that you should check out. Subscribe to the master feed at changelog.com forward slash master to get everything we ship. I want to personally invite you to join your fellow Changeloggers at changelog.com forward slash community. It's free to join and stay. Leaving, on the other hand, will cost you some happiness credits. Come hang with us in Slack. There are no imposters. Everyone is welcome. Huge thanks again to our partners, Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Minnow. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all our awesome beats. That's it for this week. See you next week. Thank you.